0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Parna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Daniel Agbiboa. Daniel Agbiboa is an assistant professor of African and African-American studies at Harvard University. He earned a DPhil from the University of Oxford and an MPhil from the University of Cambridge. His research and teaching focus on how state and non-state forms of order and authority interact and shape each other. He's the author of They Eat Our Sweat, Transport Labour, Corruption and Everyday Survival in Urban Nigeria, Oxford University Press 2022, which was recently picked among the five best books on the economy as if people mattered. He is also the author of Mobility, Mobilization, and Counterinsurgency The Roots of Terror in an African Context, University of Michigan Press 2022, which won the International Studies Association Leanne Fuji Best Book Award and the ISAP's Best Global South Scholar Book Award. Professor Agbiboa is a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton and a recipient of the HF Gaggenheim Distinguished Scholar Award. In today's conversation, we are going to discuss his book, They Eat Our Sweat, Transport Labour, Corruption and Everyday Survival in Urban Nigeria, which has been published by the OUP in 2022. Daniel, thank you so much for giving me time and, you know, uh, agreeing to talk about your book to NBN.
1: Absolutely, it's a delight to be here and thank you for having me.
0: Right, so let me begin the discussion by asking you about your main motivation behind writing this book.
1: Absolutely, Um, so corruption um, is a lived experience uh, for me, Uh, in particular everyday forms of corruption. I grew up uh, in Lagos, uh, Nigeria's commercial capital and Africa's largest uh, city. And um, the corruption that I had uh, the most direct contact with was the corruption I encountered at checkpoints um, at the fuel station in motor parks and bus terminals. So I was always curious about how later on in life, I read a lot about political corruption and elite corruption, uh, but those everyday forms of corruption seem not to be the center of attention. So. This was something that I wanted to investigate, those everyday forms of corruption that I knew that people felt very strongly uh, about. But in addition to that, my parents were civil servants and around the 1980s, early 1990s, um, they uh, they began to look at ways in which they can uh, supplement their income, especially in the wake of the structural adjustment uh, program in Nigeria and the impact it had on 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 people's lives and livelihood so informal transport as it were or popular forms of transport was uh one of the uh, avenues through which they 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 hoped to complement their their wages but it didn't work out uh they acquired a minibus taxi um but that minibus taxi became uh quite literally a source of headache uh they blamed uh the 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 disaster which it really was uh, on uh, the dishonesty of the driver and the collusion between the driver the mechanics uh, uh, and transport unionists so i was always again curious to know the perspective to know the story not from my parents side which i know very well but from the point of view of the transport operator who was mute throughout all these discussions um, so again, this was uh, uh, an investigation into the agency or the capacity for action, the voice, the experiences of transport operators who too often are marginalized in the discourse of corruption.
0: Right. So how does your book study corruption in Nigeria? How is it different from previous works?
1: Great question. Um, I think. The Eater Sweat uh, had a particular uh, focus, which is an attention to the everyday, the everydayness of corruption. So the book, um, as you would imagine, then centers the, the, the self-narratives of everyday actors who, who are part of the drama of corruption uh, in Nigeria. So I was uh, keen to investigate the experiences, the voices, the capacity to aspire the situational trust, the affects and emotions of uh, transport operators uh, uh, in Lagos, which was the site of study, uh, and a key aspect of this book was to to constitute a break with the existing literature, which uh, had drawn, in my opinion, a, a faulty disconnection between. Uh, Grand forms of corruption at the highest level and petty corruption at the street level. So I was uh, keen to show how um, the everyday and the political forms of corruption are very much intimate uh, and interconnected. You know, the bribes collected by uh, unionists uh, and street level bureaucrats like the police are often the critical infrastructure on which uh, party politics and even electoral campaigns uh, in Nigeria rests. So this was something that I was keen to show. And that's a key distinguishing factor uh, in the ETA well.
0: Right. So what are some of the main methods that you use in your study? Also, if you could talk a little bit about your own positionality.
1: Absolutely. So uh, the main methods were really uh, ethnography. So you might call it a mobile ethnographic approach. uh, And this involves really traveling with people uh, who, in my case, uh, are stuck yet uh, constantly on the move uh, in search for survival income. Um, This mobile ethnography was a form of sustained engagement with their their subjective perspectives on their everyday life. In fact, uh, the scholar Andre Nouveau uh, describes it so well when he talks about mobile ethnography as uh, an invitation to experience, to feel and grasp the textures, smells, comforts and discomforts and pleasures and displeasures of the moving life. And this is what I think uh, I was doing on the ground. So I was dwelling at checkpoints, I was at motor parks and bus terminals, I was at roundabouts and junctions. Uh, These were the sites of very intense discussions about corruption and about in general, politics of everyday life. Um, So those were the kind of ethnographic sensibility that I took to the field and that allowed me to collect, you know, thick textured data about corruption, which is often not out there uh, in the literature. And of course, I worked as a minibus conductor for a while, so I was able to experience uh, the micropolitics and, and, and precarities of, of public transporting from, from within the system, uh, and as well as the, the, the physical and psychological demands of, of such a job. So that was, that was uh, something that I was uh, very, very happy to have experienced uh, on the ground. In terms of my own uh, positionality, well, I am Nigerian and I grew up in Lagos. So I, in many ways, embody the readings uh, of Lagos life. Uh, but as they say, when you leave Lagos for a while, it leaves you. Um, so I was a little sluggish when I came back um, to do field work uh, from Oxford, where I was doing my PhD at the time. So I needed. <laughs> to re and reacquaint myself with the everyday and the intensity of that everyday life and the trickery and the smartness of that everyday life. So my positionality is that of an outsider within, if you like, someone who has been in the system but also has lived outside the system. So I brought that sort of emic and ethic approach uh, to the study of corruption.
0: Interesting what you call uh the challenges of adapting to a Nigerian context after coming back from another city. So I also wanted to ask about some of the challenges that you faced during your field work.
1: Um, The the challenges during field work, um, there were many. (laughs) Um, I, um, Well, people don't easily talk about, well, uh, people talk about corruption, but they don't uh, personalize it. You know, corruption is always, somewhere else. It's always done by somebody else. It's never people don't implicate themselves in, in the discuss, uh of of corruption. So, so in that sense, then corruption was everywhere, but nowhere. Uh, and that was uh, one of the first key challenges uh, that I experienced and to 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 break, to overcome that challenge I needed to get within inside the system. And this is where I worked as a minibus conductor to try to understand what was going on from within. So that was that was a key challenge you know people and also I had to pay attention to the uh to the to to the embodied language uh of of the everyday for example people when you talk about when issues of corruption emerge they might just laugh um and that laugh is not um you know has an epistemological function uh it is saying something so I had to I had to always be Vigilant to not just what is said, but also what is not said what is embodied the body language, and I think that was that was a key challenge, but in addition to that as well. um, As I mentioned earlier, I worked as a minibus uh, conductor uh, for about two months uh, and the physical and psychological demands of that job meant that I could not sustain it beyond that. Um, so just the, the 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 sheer demand of everyday life uh, in Lagos was 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 difficult. Um, so so that was a key challenge. But also the threat of uh, violence it, in in Lagos. It wasn't so much the the the, the violence, but the threat of it uh, that was exhausting. Um, which meant that you always had to um, be hyper vigilant uh, about things. You always had to have um, as they say in Lagos, you have, always have to shine your eyes, to open your eyes. Um, so I think that's just living in that state of hypervigilance was something that was also draining uh, on the ground. But also, I was dealing with um, uh, the National Union of Road Transport Workers, uh, which is uh, the most politicized um, uh, uh and in many ways, dangerous union uh, in in Nigeria, uh, a union that that thrives in secrecy. Um, So it was difficult to sort of discover the underneath of their politics. Uh, And at any point in time in the motor parks or bus terminals, I wasn't sure uh, if uh, I was stepping on the toes of a rival union, because there was a lot of rivalry uh, within the union that made it very difficult uh to uh to position yourself within within that kind of um precarious space that space where anything can happen at any point in time so that was that was a huge uh challenge for me um and i needed time to build networks of trust ne- networks of intimacy that allowed me to, to you know to have um a certain level of um 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 trust, a certain level of confidence that I could navigate these spaces safely. So it was always, always the abiding threat of violence was something that was on my mind. Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, so uh, again, coming back to this question of corruption, what do you mean by corruption in an everyday context? If you could explain with a few examples?
1: Yes, absolutely. So corruption in the everyday context is really taking um, centering the everyday in the understanding of corruption. So immediately when you talk about the everyday, you're talking about, um, w- when you use everyday in conversation, it's almost like the the, the routine, the taking for granted. Um, and, and so corruption, everyday corruption is often the taking for granted, the repetitive, the routine aspect of corruption. And the whole idea was to say that there's nothing um, trivial about this repetitiveness of corruption. There's nothing petty about everyday corruption. It is in fact central to people's lives and livelihoods. Um, So that's what I mean by everyday corruption. And everyday corruption is really, while the news is often trapped in the spectacular, fantastic aspects of corruption, for example, the millions and billions that are looted by political leaders, everyday corruption is the corruption that ordinary people have feel very strongly about. For example, is the corruption that you have to pay in order to get access to um, much needed medical uh, facilities? Is the corruption that you have to, to pay, uh, for example, from the point of view of a, a, a transport worker, that you have to pay in order to pick up passengers from a, a bus stop or a bus terminal? Uh, is the corruption that you encounter at the numerous checkpoints uh that that just interrupt your journey and and as you know time is money in many 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 african cities um so just that constant interruption as a result of um trigger happy police officers uh, who work side by side with uh predatory unionists uh was just was just um something that was that was really deeply frustrating for 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 the the transport actors that i was in conversation with as well as the passengers as well So it's that everyday routine corruption which gives the false impression that it is trivial, but is in fact uh, deeply central to people's emotions, uh, both both negative emotions such as frustrations, anger, bitterness about a system that is uh, dysfunctional. So
0: how does your book take an actor-oriented approach in understanding corruption?
1: Yeah, so actor-centered approach was, was um an approach that sort of revolves around uh the self-narratives of um the the actors who as i said earlier who are part of this drama of corruption so in other words what's the perspective of the the transport operator the driver the conductor the passenger the motor packed out who works uh uh on behalf of the union these perspectives have often been marginalized in the discourse of corruption. Uh, these actors who sometimes are neither states nor non-states, they sort of occupy this liminal phase between the formal and the informal. These perspectives, their perspectives are too often marginalized. So an actor-centered approach was to elevate their voices, their experiences, um, their aspirations, their, um, you know, trust, uh, Tactics and strategies—all of these were things that I was uh, that, that constitute what an actor-centered approach is. But it wasn't just to focus on um, these neglected, marginalized voices, but also to put them in conversation with, um, uh, you know, the political voices, the voices of the elite, to show that there is, when it comes to corruption, uh, there is a dialectics, there is a mutuality. Um, corruption is a is a language, it's a conversation, uh, and so this was something that I was keen to do through an actor centered approach that allowed me to bring out the mutuality of corruption uh, and at the same time uh, reconfigure the margins of of corruption in the, in, in the African city.
0: So uh, you've already stated that you know you worked with transport workers and you yourself also worked as one. So how do Transport workers negotiate with everyday corruption in the Nigerian society.
1: Yes, negotiation was something that was really uh, an interesting discovery uh, on on the ground because um, you know before I went uh, on the ground to to collect data, the the, the I was well acquainted with what was um, you know the basic thrust of the corruption literature. Uh, and it, it seemed to me that the discourse when it came to you know the african city was a discourse of um, spectacular forms of violence was a discourse of victims uh, and and victors um but this wasn't what i experienced uh, on the ground standing there moving around checkpoints and bus terminals Um, What I realized was that first, more more than this violence was the threat of violence, this psychological aspect. It wasn't that I was encountering violence everywhere, but I knew that it was possible. Uh, And and that already was what compelled the the functionality of that system. It it, it was the organizing logic of that corrupt system. Um, and, and, And... Another key aspect uh, um, just, just looking on the ground was that people um, had de- developed various tactics and strategies for negotiating corruption. So corruption was, um, could be understood in the context of social discourse. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, you could have um, a transport operator, a driver and his conductor, uh, and this was a, a masculine space um, um, who would, you know, encounter the transport unionist on the, on the road, these transport unionists that are seen as, you know, very violent, um, uh, but, but at the same time, tell these transport unionists who is demanding for money that, you know, I'm only just starting my work for today. I haven't made enough money give me some time to, to, to make some money and I will settle you as they say. Um, so again, this is one way in which they are saying, I, it's not that I am not going to pay you, but I need some time to also survive. And they are tapping into this logic of mutuality, this logic of you eat, I eat. So they said dialectics, there, where saying, we are concerned about collaborative survival. I know you need to do your work, but also I need to do my work to earn my living. So they're tapping into that understanding in order to sort of delay the corruption. And sometimes they can even beat down the price of corruption. Uh, For example, they could say, um, you know, I haven't had any luck with passengers today. I've had very few passengers, so I can't pay you the... The amount of corruption the amount of bribe that you're demanding but i can give you half of it There's, There are those kinds of micro level negotiations that are taking place that are too often lost in the spectacularity of the corruption discussed so this was something that i was keen to 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 talk about uh in the book but it's also the case that corruption people had moved beyond uh, questioning whether corruption should be present, uh, whether, whether people should, whether we should do away with corruption. Rather, they wanted a sort of a systematized um, uh, uh, approach to corruption. For example, during field work, uh, transport operators went on strike not because they were paying bribes, but but because there was no agreed amount of bribes to be to be collected. There was no agreed point of uh, collection. So. Which, which seems to suggest that this whole, uh, again, spectacular language of war on corruption does not really work because it misses out on the social aspect of corruption. And this is another aspect that I was keen to emphasize.
0: Right. So my next question is, how do you think the post-colonial state is constructed from below through these practices of everyday corruption?
1: Yes, uh, I, I think people have the, the very... Imagination of the state comes from those sort of everyday interaction, because, in the end, the first the the the, the, the encounter you have of the state is really those embodied encounters, so, those encounters with street-level bureaucrats like the police, those encounters with um, state collaborators like the the National Union of Road Transport Workers. So those are the spaces through which people you know, get a sense of what the state is about. So the state then emerge uh, in those popular discourse as a negotiated state, a state that you have to, you know, negotiate with as you do when you go to the market and you try to beat down prices. The state also emerges as this, um, not just the state, as this singular monolithic actor, but as a hybrid actor, an actor that, um that is at once there and not there an actor that thrives on this sort of mutuality this sort of relationship with various forms of uh other actors such as the unionists such as the police um the road transport uh the inspectors um so so there's there's, there's this sort of complexity about the states that moves us beyond a sort of uh, a homogenized narrative of the state as removed from society. So straight away, what you encounter is a state that is implicated in the very, you know, details of everyday life. Uh, and I'm sure this is also um, very uh, similar to the kind of experience of the state in a place like India as well, where uh, street-level bureaucrats are more found not <laughs> in their offices, but actually on the roads in the streets, uh, uh, grounded in that sort of uh, 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 everyday politics. So I think this notion of the state as uh, as removed from society is one that um, that, that that is um, that has no bearing on the way in which people experience uh, the state. Because from a bottom up approach, from an everyday perspective, the post colonial state is uh, is a negotiated. Uh, uh, state and people, 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 people engage with the states through that lens of, of, of negotiation. So it's not always about the violence, which which obscure more than clarify what is actually happening on the ground. Um, so part of what this book does is to is to invite us to look beyond um, these, these, these sort of dramatic notions of the state, this, this, spectacularizing notion of the state to 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 focus on the spectral you know the state that is uh, more diffused uh, uh, and the state that 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 is part of part and parcel of the way in which people interact uh, in in at the street level a state that is not disconnected from people's lives and livelihoods. so so that intimate aspect of the state is something that uh, I think uh, is more, most clear. When you look at um, uh, spaces like everyday spaces like motor parks and bus terminals,
0: right? You also bring up the Corruption Perception Index CPI in your book. So, if you could talk a little bit about what it means and what its functionality is in the context of Nigeria,
1: yes, absolutely. So, the Corruption Perception uh, Index by Transparency International is perhaps the um, the best known index on corruption uh, in the world um it 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 typically ranks roughly 100, 180 countries and territories around the world uh focusing on their perceived levels of public sector corruption so that's the focus and and it, it 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 then gives results based on a scale of 0 which is highly corrupt to 100 which is very clean um so one, one of the critique I have of these um, corruption perception index, which make no mistake about it, has contributed to the reduction of corruption in the sense that no state really wants to be found on the bottom of, at, at the bottom of the corruption perception index. So in that sense then, uh, it has uh, at least a symbolic uh, uh, impact on, on, on corruption. But what what it does again, is that in focusing on public sector corruption, it sort of misses the dialectics, the mutuality of corruption that I've spoken about uh, earlier. In other words, what is the public and what is the private? Uh, I think it reproduces this uh, narrow understanding of corruption as the use of public office for private gain. When in fact, uh, at the everyday level, the post-colonial state blows the line between the public uh, and the private. Uh, um, and, and so this was something that I was keen to 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 emphasize again in the book, but also it it, it has the Chappin's the, the, the CPI or the Corruption Perception Index tends to focus again on you know the perceptions of the elite, uh, not the perception of the subaltern, the everyday uh, people, the the people who find themselves on the margins of society. Um, so this is an aspect, again, that I thought not so much to do away with the Corruption Perception Index, but to be in conversation, with, to expand and complement what it has already set out to do, which is to to understand uh, uh, corruption and to fight corruption. So that's the way in which I see uh, this book as providing um, the, the critical infrastructure uh, on which indexes like Corruption Perception Index can rest. Uh, and show the ways in which corruption is 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 more complex. The picture is more complex than is often painted by these indexes, which really you have to ask the question, can you reduce a phenomenon that is so um so embedded in 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 language, in culture, and in, in sociality, can you reduce them to a certain number? It, it's very difficult and it's very hard to see how that can be the case unless one has a very narrow understanding of corruption. Uh, And so this is what I wanted to do, to show the the textured aspects of corruption, the politics of corruption, the pika aspects of corruption that too often this index uh, uh, misses out on. Uh, And one can only do that by paying attention to the repetitiveness, uh, to the emotions uh, that surrounds corruption uh, on the ground.
0: Mm, Right. Uh, Last question, Daniel. Uh, How do you think the book goes beyond you know, the existing theoretical and dominant approaches that talk about corruption in Africa and of course also the Global South generally.
1: Yes, um, I think what one thing the, the book does is to draw our attention to the uh, corruption as, in the end, rooted in language, in the way in which people converse, in the way in which people um, uh, interact. Um, In other words, what it does is shift our attention away from corruption as being fantastic, as being spectacular, to corruption as being part and parcel of the way in which uh, 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 relationships are built, uh, the way in which uh, state and non-state actors interact. So that's the first thing that uh, the book does, because when you... um, so w- once you do that, once you shift the focus away from the spectacular to the spectral, uh, one thing you quickly realize is that you can no longer talk about uh, corruption as being something that is just static, something that is part of um, the culture of of a people, uh, which is just uh, grossly misleading and 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 in fact uh, wrong, um, because what I discovered in Nigeria. Well, in the popular literature and the popular imaginary, Nigeria is supposed to be the um, the bastion of the corrupt, um, the very um, epitome of, of 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 what corruption is. Um, but in fact, uh, on the ground, people, the people that I encountered and I spoke to, um, you know, often felt very strongly against uh, corruption. Uh, they criticized corruption, they crit- cr- criticized people participating in corruption, um, but they also showed a certain level of nuance and uh, they, they, they had a sense in which, th- there was a sense in which certain forms of corruption was had crossed the line into the unacceptable and so had become too much. Um, so corruption, c- corruption then was not just, this was not just a culture of corruption but a culture against uh, uh, corruption, uh, but also it, it sort of deconstructed this notion that corruption is part of our culture uh, as Africans uh, and therefore um, uh, people should not uh, describe Africans as corrupt. I think many of those things are nonsensical because um, they're very, and, and they are instrumental for for political leaders at times. I think on the ground, there was a sense in which there was a clear sense in which people were, saw the, the, the harmful effect of corruption in their lives. But they were also realistic as well. They realized that nobody's going to do away with corruption because corruption is so ingrained into the social that it was impossible to do away with. But instead, one had to bring corruption to an acceptable level uh, uh, that, that ensures that it's now, it's now the underneath, it, it no longer directly. Uh, sort of impact and impinge impinge on people's lives and livelihood. I think that nuance is something that that is very important and that is missing in in culturalist uh, uh, functionalist notions of corruption that too often miss the bigger picture of corruption. Uh, and you can get that through the Corruption Perception Index, for example, that that, that focuses your attention on uh, corruption as being you know, as reducible to, you know, rankings and numbers. Uh, I think you get that by grounding corruption where it belongs in the social. And I think this is what they eat as well does. Even the very metaphor of eating uh, suggests that there is a sort of dialectics, a commensality about corruption. Uh, I eat, you eat, a mutuality about corruption, um, a negotiation about corruption that this book was was keen to to bring out. So. This idea that there's something that corruption is inherent uh, to uh, the way of life of a people is something that I criticize uh, showing the ways in which corruption is in fact uh, heavily criticized on the ground, but people feel compelled to reproduce the corruption that they experience on a daily basis just because not to do that is to is to die uh, a social death and, and, and even a physical death because, uh, because because of the, the 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 threat of that violence that is always there um so i think i think people are realistic on the ground and i think this this idea to treat the everyday as repetitive as trivial denies the everyday of the agency and its capacity for nuance its capacity for action and i think it's something that everyday corruption uh, uh allows us to see to see that the language of the war on corruption is an essentialist language. The language of the culture of corruption is an essentialist language. We need to be develop approaches to corruption that are more complex and that mirror the complexity of the very phenomenon that we are um, studying.
0: Thank you so much for talking to me and NBN about your book in such details. Uh, once again, I would like to thank you for your time. and effort. And I hope that our listeners now, if they haven't already pick up a copy of your book and get reading. And for those who have already read it, I hope this podcast was useful in again, refreshing your memories about the book. So thank you, Daniel, once again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure.